Last week, a parish musician sent me a recording of children singing the first piece of music I ever wrote for children. What was that? It's an Advent piece, and it goes like this. Stay awake, be ready. Be ready. The Lord is coming soon. Welcome to Hark. So, Chris, we've got you back on Hark. It's a delight for us to have you. And I wanted to talk to you today about In the Bleak Midwinter. In the Bleak Midwinter? That sounds really depressing to me. I have never heard the song in my entire life. Christmas is not always associated with, like, the giddy anticipation of getting presents. And sometimes it's just a dark part of the year and you want a song that you feel like you can listen to and wallow a little bit. There's also a beautiful scene in first season of The Crown where King George is dying of cancer. What can I give him poor as I am And uh, some carolers come in and sing it to him. I just think that's a beautiful song with a beautiful message. And The Bleak Midwinter is just beautiful, kind of haunting. It makes you feel like you can see the snowflakes falling around you. Welcome to Hark, a podcast about the meaning and the making of our favorite Christmas carols. I'm your host, Maggie Van Dorn, and over the four weeks of Advent, we're unwrapping one song at a time. We look at the musical development of these jingles, along with the religious and cultural messages baked into their lyrics. And on this episode, we're featuring In the Bleak Midwinter. Now, I must confess, I had never heard of this carol before my co-producer, Ricardo Da Silva, brought it to my attention. And he said, We absolutely must do In the Bleak Midwinter. (laughs) Yes. Now, Ricardo, why do you love this song so much? Maggie, it's just one of my favorites. I grew up with a very summery Christmas. Christmas was in South Africa, so Santa was on a surfboard rather than on a sleigh. (laughs) Yeah. And when I joined the Jesuits in my early 20s, I was sent to the UK and it got pretty cold <laughs> and yeah. pretty bleak. And I was in Birmingham at Christmas time, away from my family, away from my friends, away from everything that I'd known as Christmas at the time. And I heard this song and it has this wonderful melody that's just at once sad and heartwarming and it lifted my heart. The other thing that was really important though about it was I was introduced to a tradition of caroling. We would go to the local hospital and I was sent with a group to the oncology ward. I remember when I arrived at the oncology ward and I started to sing in the bleak midwinter and others, of course, some of the joyful, more cheery ones as well. There was just a sense for me of this is Christmas and how important it was for my Christmas to be close to those who needed good cheer. (laughs) And something like in the bleak midwinter was just there 
it echoed the environment around me, the environment outside. And at the same time, it had this lightness, which reminded me of why I was there. And we'll see this in the carol, especially in the final lyric. What can I give him, poor as I am, I give myself. So because this carol brims with meaning for you, Ricardo, I'd like you to take the reins for the remainder of the episode. Wow, I get my own episode of Huck. This is lovely. (laughs) So just to kick us off. Can you tell us who wrote In the Bleak Midwinter? I can't tell you who wrote it because we're going to leave that for a little later on in the episode. What I can tell you is that we're bringing back our old friend, Chris Walker. Ah, Chris! Indeed, of the Celtic Hallelujah. And he's going to walk us through the tune and a version of this carol that he particularly loves. Take it away, Ricardo. There are two musical settings of this by one very famous composer, which is congregational, and one by another composer who's not really known for very much, but his version of In the Bleak Midwinter is easily the favorite the world over. Before we get into these competing compositions and who's his best, let's first get the facts down about each one. Gustav Holst is the very famous composer Chris mentioned, Maybe you've heard of him. Everyone's heard of Holst's planet suites. Mars, the bringer of war, Saturn, old age, Venus, beauty, and so on. But if this is all news to you, Gustav Holst is an Englishman of great renown. He is famous for his orchestral suite, the planets, but he also wrote 30 operas over the course of his life. In the Bleak Midwinter is perhaps unique in that it's one everyone can sing. It's a simple congregational tune but it's got some very interesting features about it. It sounds like this. So an ordinary hymn tune, but it follows, rather interestingly as far as I'm concerned, a classical music form known as a double period. And I know you're going to say, what's a double period? What is a double period? Good question. It is this. It's four phrases. Question, kind of an answer, bigger question, final answer. So the question there isn't a literal question. There's no question mark in the text. But how do we know that there's a question there? By our ears and by the way the tune is written. So the first phrase, which is a little question. In the bleak midwinter, frosty winds made moan. It's a question. It's not finished. It's not finished. Earth stood hard as iron. That's the same as the first line. But that finishes water like a stone. That sounds kind of finished, but it's not satisfying enough. But then the composer goes a little higher and a little more intense. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow. Big question, big question. I need an answer. In the bleak midwinter, long ago. Go! Final answer. Hmm. So what's happening in the music that's leading me to that? It's the harmony. So we begin, actually, I ought to say, 
the melody actually begins on a very weak note. What does that mean? I wished he'd written, In the bleak midwinter. A much better start. But he wrote, In the bleak midwinter. It just is a weak note. Wait a minute. Actually, it might be genius. What word is he putting it on? He's putting it on in... In is not as important as winter, bleak, and snow. And ah. so he begins on a weak note of the scale. In the bleak. Suddenly bleak comes out. Because he wants to stress that. He wants to stress bleak and midwinter and not in the, which are sort of disposable words. He's not doing what so many composers today, and this is, I'm nailing my colors to the mast here. So many composers today write a tune that they like and squidge the words in to fit their lovely tune. But not Chris Walker, surely. No, I'll tell you why. Because when I was at school, I read in A History of Music about William Byrd, the Tudor composer, living at exactly the same time as Shakespeare. And in fact, people think that Byrd and Shakespeare might have known each other and stood side by side while a friend of them was burned at the stake. Oh, yes. Anyway, so William Byrd was asked by someone, how do you write music? And he said this, I get me to a quiet place and sit me down. Then I pray and I say the words and the music comes. And I thought, well, if that's good enough for William Byrd, it's good enough for Christopher Walker. I never write a tune and then find some words that fit with it. I always begin with the text. So the music literally grows out of the text. And that's exactly what we have here, right? I mean, we, we know that the text predates the music. It does, by a couple of decades. In fact, it's a little more than a couple. Holst wrote the tune for In the Bleak Midwinter in 1906 almost three decades after the text first appeared in print. He was invited by his best friend, Vaughan Williams, who is another famous composer and hymn writer, to write a Christmas carol for a new English hymnal. Vaughan Williams and Holst knew each other very well. In fact, when they were working on a composition, each of them, while they were still writing it, would play it to the other. And Holst appears to have great affection for this tune. He named it Cranham, after the village of his mother's birth in southwest England, a place where he had also lived for a time. And it's out of this that our carol comes to be. But let's get back to Chris and that tune. So we have a home key. So the first phrase goes like this. Excuse me, that's not a finish. It's pretty ugly. So this is the small question part. This is the small question. Doesn't it sound unfinished? Yeah, definitely. Then the next phrase, which hopefully will be an answer. We're back at home. But... It doesn't feel like an ending. We're, we are home, but should we go a little further from home this time? Should we, instead of taking a little coach ride, should we take a plane? Mm. 
it's kind of more of a question, still unfinished, because our home key is, we've got to get back there somehow, mm -hmm. so how will we do it? Finally, we're home. That really is a syntax and a grammar to traditional harmony, which is very satisfying, mm -hmm. that you don't have to think about, but it gives you an emotional feel. Mm. I think that's enough about questions and answers. But I have more questions for you. <laughs> right. <laughs> Here's where we turn to that other, less famous composer. In 1909, just three years after Holst composed in the bleak midwinter, another Englishman, Harold Dark, also took a stab at setting the words to music. Harold Dark was a student when he wrote this. He was 21, and he was an organist and a composer. Let me just say this. He was very unhappy about having written this piece. Why? Well, there's another composer who was also unhappy about writing his piece, and his name is John Stainer, mm -hmm. who wrote an oratorio called The Crucifixion. He was walking John Stainer outside Westminster Abbey one day with the organist of Westminster Abbey, and he said, oh, I wish to God I'd never written that thing. No one listens to any of my other music. Mm. And the same thing happened to Harold Dark. This was the piece he was known for. In fact, in 2008, the BBC magazine called it the greatest carol of all time. But Harold Dark was really cross about it because that's all he was known for. It's a bit like I'm really cross. You know, on my gravestone, it's going to say, here lies Christopher Walker, only known for the Celtic Alleluia. And indeed... When you hear Dark's magical composition weaving vocal parts in and out seamlessly and creating a Christmassy soundscape that will bring your jaw from the pew to the cathedral floor, you'll understand why it's beloved the world over. But this isn't easy to do. And that's why I still prefer Holst's version, because it's for the common caroler. But what about Chris? Well, I've said enough about the Holst, except to say that it's an ordinary hymn tune, a lovely hymn tune, and everyone can sing it. But I don't know what your experience is in church, but at Christmas, people like to sing Christmas carols, but they also like to listen to the choir who's been practicing their carols since September for their, like their nine lessons and carols or whatever. So what does a choir need to know about Dark's composition? to sing it well. The text has five verses, and he, in fact, sets four. And the first one, it says soprano solo. But, of course, in an Anglican choir, when he wrote this, there weren't sopranos. They were trebles. They were boys.
to hear a high, in-tune, beautiful treble voice singing in the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan and so on is very, very evocative. Then the second verse is for the choir singing four-part harmony. And then the organ comes back in. And then the third verse is for any aspiring tenor who really is a tenor, not a baritone who's crossing his legs and trying to get up there. And then for the last verse, he's very clever. What he does is he brings in the sopranos and altos. And with them singing that, he plays just the organ, just intervals, two notes, two notes, two notes. question, what can I give him poor as I am? Then the whole choir comes in and they sing to the end. A congregation couldn't sing that. But here's the Felix Kulpa. What do you mean by Felix Kulpa? What I mean is a fault, but a happy fault in his melody. At the very end, he's looked at doing what we would call in music a bit of word painting. In the last line, he sets the melody. In the bleak midwinter, long ago. So he's painting with music. Word painting. Yes, word painting. The word long. That's a long note that the soloist sings. And he does that in each of the verses. So can you tell us what are the words in each of the verses that, that happens? Oh, you are sharp. That's what I'm getting to. So what happens in verse two? What a wonderful way to embrace the Lord. Mm-hmm. with a long note like that. So you know, you can't make any mistake of who's in that manger. Mm-hmm. It is the Son of God. And then the third verse, which is rather cleverly done. The ox and ass and camel which adore. Uh, uh, where are those notes? They're in the accompaniment. Let me just play them. The ox and ass and camel which adore. So the organ finishes the tune, but the voice keeps on adoring the Lord on that high note. It's almost as though the adoration spills onto the organ. Exactly. It's still there. And what's the final long note that we have? Well, he resets his tune, which is why you couldn't sing this with a congregation, because the last phrase, what can I give him, give my heart, it sounds like this. It's not, give my heart, it's give my heart. A real climax, a real Mm. wonderful. And it's a top G, which most parishes can just about manage and sound good at. It won't be a screech. So it's an answer to a really big question. Well, it's an even bigger answer because he does this. Give my heart. And then he repeats. Give my heart. And there we are back home. What's the important line? It's give my heart, 
everyone listening to this being sung in every parish church, in King's College, wherever it is, when they hear, what can I give him? Give my heart, give my heart. With that slowing down of the text, everyone is encouraged to say, me too, Lord. Mm. Brilliant, brilliant music setting. But even more brilliant words, right? The poetry here is just exquisite. Yes, it was written by a woman. After the break, we'll hear all about the woman who wrote these brilliant lyrics. I've written about everything from Elton John's Rocket Man, the movie, through to the First World War. And I'm Catholic with a small c, if that makes sense. This is Rachel Mann. I'm a Church of England priest. I'm based in the northwest of the UK. I'm a writer, a broadcaster. I used to be a music journalist. And I'm something of a Christina Rossetti geek. Which is just perfect, because Christina Rossetti is the wordsmith behind In the Bleak Midwinter. Were it not for her turns of phrase, we would have nothing to sing. The thing is, Ricardo, when it comes to saying something about who Christina Rossetti is, this is in danger of metastasizing into the entire podcast, because she's just a genuinely fascinating person. So just who is the woman behind this haunting carol? The first thing we need to know about Christina Rossetti is that she was born into an Anglo-Italian family of enormous gifts and talents. Her father was an escapee from the nationalist struggles in southern Italy of the late 18th and early 19th century. He married a member of the Polidori family, John Polidori is famous because of his connection with Byron and Shelley. So this is a family plugged into the cool kids of the early part of the 19th century, these literary giants. And just who makes up this 19th century rat pack? Well, let's meet the Rossetti kids, beginning with Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Pre-Raphaelite painter, in some ways a figure who's overshadowed Christina. Then there's the other brother, William Rossetti. He was a civil servant who was really important for introducing Christina's poems to a new generation of readers in the early 20th century. And another sister, Maria Francesca, who became an Anglican nun. So this period of the 19th century was the point at which the religious life was allowed once again in England And into this brood of romantics, Christina Rossetti is born, the youngest of the four. So Christina was born in 1830. She died in 1894. A woman who was educated at home, but educated to a level that exceeded the level of many highly educated young men. And just to complete the family picture, there was Christina's mother, Frances Polidori. She was a highly educated woman who homeschooled all her children. Absolutely. And in addition to be learned, a part of a literary culture, a kind of salon culture, 
where the family home would be a drop-in place for great minds. Another thing that's really important when we try and understand her is that she was a passionate Anglo-Catholic. The Oxford movement was a key element in what we call the Anglo-Catholic revival, which set out whole new ways of thinking about devotion, ritual. Now, this was crucial to Rossetti's understanding of poetry and its possibilities, but also to who she was as a religious person. And now, I mean, we're talking about Rossetti as though she's already well-established, but we're talking about a young girl. I mean, she's a prolific writer. She's written, I don't know how many poems, by the age of 16. Can we talk about her work and where she fits into all of this? Sure. So in terms of where she fits into what we might say is this upsurge of artistic and religious expression at mid-century, that is a moot question because... If we take the reading of Rossetti that is presented to us by her brother William in the 1904 collected poems, we get this impression of a young woman who is quite reserved, who in some ways is very separate, mystical, who has great lyric gifts but is not engaged in an energetic way with this artistic religious milieu is, is very intense, I guess. Yeah, I mean, she has a nervous breakdown at 14 from what sources say, and she suffers from depression at a very early age. That's true. However, certainly some feminist scholars of the 80s and 90s gave some pushback on this picture of her as the depressed, morbid figure. Mm. Now, it is true that there was something that happened when she was 14, 15. Nobody's quite sure. she was. Yeah, I mean, the accusations of religious mania, even. Well, indeed. But there are these other stories that emerge in the picture that's presented by her father and by her mother and by her sister, which suggests that actually, although she had a period of you know, depression, religious mania. She was also incredibly well engaged with people. She wasn't a party girl, but she was part of that salon world. This idea of religious mania, bouts of depression, casting her in bad light in terms of her mental health. Is it something that was typical of the day for her male contemporaries? You know, we talk about Keats and Lord Byron and Shelley. Would they have done similar things? we know that their own temperaments were not the easiest. I think the answer is no. Let's just take a peek at John Keats, shall we? He died young, and even while he lived, he seemed to fit the archetype of a sickly, melancholic poet. You can see it in his poetry and also in his letters, where he once wrote, I am in that temper that if I were underwater, I would scarcely kick to come to the top. Of course, this image of a brooding genius worked for Keats, because the archetype was cast in his likeness. But for women, no such model existed. Even to the point where women were not generally given the title of poet, but were called poetess, and were still subject to this idea that somehow women were weaker, were domestic, were not actually fit for writing poetry. And here we have Rossetti. You said she was in with a cool crowd. Was she a cool kid? 
Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I think that's where we have this complex picture because on the one hand, her brother William suggests that she was, I mean, verging on the mad girl in the attic, you know, this sort of character out of Jane Eyre or something. That behaviour would not have been seen as cool. But I think that she was much more comfortable with the cultural milieu than is sometimes presented. So some of the other research seems to suggest that Christina suffered some sort of sexual violence, sexual abuse, and therefore that she, as a result, became this recluse or that her depression came about as a result of something done to her. I don't think I can shed very much light on it, actually. I do not, for a second, wish to doubt that there was some sort of incident. My sense is that what was important for her in terms of processing her experience of suffering was that she did that through a profound understanding of the centrality of God to her life. What is the centrality of God in her life? What's her religious worldview? In essence, she is saying that through a poem and its symbols, through its metaphors, if you are a person of faith, that poem itself offers a prism to meet the living God. So how does she then process her life experience, right, her suffering through her writing and then use that as a way to point to the divine life within her? There is a gloominess that some people discern in her poetry. A bleak midwinter, some might say. Indeed. However, into that bleakness, there is this sense of transcendence, this shining power of God. And her poetry offers this meeting place for us to take our suffering, for her to take her suffering and offer it to God. And for her, I think that's quite concrete. This isn't just words. Words take us to reality. So where do we first encounter in the bleak midwinter? In the Bleak Midwinter was originally published in a US magazine, Scribner's Monthly, in 1872, and it was published as A Christmas Carol. Do we know whether that's a title that Rossetti gave it? The thing is, is that Rossetti wrote a lot of carols, relatively speaking, and I don't think that she was unafraid of giving them titles, although her complete poems runs to over a thousand pages. And there are very, very many poems which had no title. What's the difference, if there is any, that you might discern or know of between a carol and a poem? The crucial thing about a poem, certainly in the lyric tradition, is that it holds its own music. A carol as a song sung, as something for carolers, I feel, even if this is not a technical definition, is something where the music amplifies. And this is the crucial thing for me, Ricardo, about In the Bleak Midwinter, A Christmas Carol. It holds its own music. That makes it a poem. For me, part of the difference is precisely 
to do with the way in which In the Bleak Midwinter offers a kind of poetic truth that takes us beyond a simple narrative. And it's for that poetic truth that I called Rachel across the Atlantic, so that verse by verse we could plunge into just some of this carol's poetic meaning. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen snow on snow, snow on snow. In the bleak midwinter, long ago. It models what I would call a a melancholic evocation. It has a slight sadness, almost. The bleak midwinter and so few of our Christmas carols do this well. I don't understand this, but frosty wind made moan? What's moan? When the wind blows and it almost howls, it's biting and it's moaning as well. Gosh, this is quite scary, actually. Yeah, it's sort of this impending scene. I mean, also, earth hard as iron, water like a stone, it's immovable, impermeable, you know, snow is falling on snow. There's been no let. Absolutely. And we're here back at one of Rosetta's abiding fascinations, the interest in what we might call the apocalyptic, the end times. Well, we're coming to the end times in verse two, aren't we? (laughs) Well, indeed, yes. Sorry, move me along. (laughs) Let me move move you along. along. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed. The Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Now, this is genuinely an extraordinary theological moment in this poem. Or some would say an untheological moment. (laughs) Well, indeed. I mean, the Ian Bradley, who's a Protestant hymnody specialist, thinks it's heresy that heaven cannot hold God. I mean, Rossetti here, and she knows her Bible. For me, though, what's extraordinary is the way in which there's, there's this sense of heaven not being able to hold God, Christ, Yet the stable place suffices. And that pun on stable, the stable place that's both an exposed place, but of course, somewhere that's stable and solid. It's also quite literal, right? That the heavens, vast as they are, can't hold. But a stable place, a comfortable place, a small manger can. (laughs) Quite literally, it can hold. I mean, that's the power of the metaphor here is... At one level, she doesn't have to try to make her point. It's a simple point. And it certainly didn't please Ian Bradley. I have his question here. Is it right to say that heaven cannot hold God, nor the earth sustain? And what about heaven and earth fleeing away when he comes to reign? I guess I see his point. I mean, it's that word flee, isn't it? What does that mean? That somehow when he comes to reign, there is a sense of everything fleeing away from the the glory of God. I think that what Rosette is getting at here is that the reign of Christ at the end times is a genuine new heaven, new earth. Mm. And that all that was, of course, will pass away. Mm. 
I'm wondering about that heresy that Bradley speaks of. He seems to be saying that heaven cannot contain God, right? And yet it is perhaps pretentious of us, <laughs> even far too bold of us, to expect that God might be contained. It's that paradox, you know, a mystery is better. That is a much better word. It's that mystery of the God who cannot be contained, who is beyond all imaginings and cannot be put in a box, and yet the God who is revealed to us in a baby in a crib. And for me, the mystery just keeps going because that little baby also takes us back to the transcendence, the uncontainability of God. And she doubles down on the humanity of God. Enough for him whom cherubim worship night and day, she says in the next verse, breast full of milk and a manger full of hay. Enough for him whom angels fall before, the ox and ass and camel which adore. That which is sufficient is this breast full of milk and a manger full of hay. Now, I'm not quite sure where that sits in a theology that's worked out every last detail. I don't know. But I know where that sits in my heart as someone who wants to know the living God. It speaks to an image of God that we spend very little time with nowadays. You know, God as mother. <laughs> There's this breast full of milk. Only a mother can provide that, right? Well, I'm sure we both know that to speak about God in motherly terms, God as mother, God as like a mother, is something that's a little bit fraught. It's It's not seen as acceptable, certainly not at present. For those of us who've been influenced by feminists, and dare I say it, those of us who take the Bible seriously, I think we need to treat with these maternal images of God. Thinking in the Gospels of that image of God as like the woman tidying up or searching her house for the lost coin. Everyone talks about God as like the shepherd who goes out looking for the lost sheep or God is like the father in the story of the prodigal son. And everyone forgets about that feminine image of God. This is a, a maternal God, a God of intimacy. Surely we need in our faith stories, these counterweights which critique macho and, and masculine ideas of God centered around power over rather than power as intimate as milk-based, which feed and nourish and meet us in our vulnerability. I love that, power which nourishes. And there's something so strong throughout the poem, but here especially, where she says, enough for him, enough for him whom angels fall before, right? There's a sense of sufficiency in the midst of this need, much like Christmas, right? I mean, Christmas for so many people is an incredibly painful time as well, where they are reminded maybe that they aren't enough, maybe because they don't have loved ones around them, or maybe because they haven't found the love that they're looking for, or simply because they are reminded of a love they had that they no longer have at Christmas. And somehow there's the sense of enough. There is enough here for everybody. And we do live in cultural contexts where enough is not seen as sufficient, an emptiness that constantly needs to be filled with stuff, with presents, with more money. 
there's something extraordinarily countercultural in this line, enough for him. So let's go to the next verse. Angels and archangels may have gathered there. Cherubim and seraphim thronged the air. But his mother only, in her maiden bliss, worshipped the beloved with a kiss. To worship with a kiss. Now, maybe for us that seems commonplace. I've been singing this carol for the best part of 50 years. But this moves my heart and it makes me think at the same time to worship with a kiss. And it's only his mother. This is a world in which, dare I say it, all the patriarchal narratives are out the window. This is intimacy. It's incredibly sensual, right? I mean, it's sensitive. It's taking this very simple idea of touching your child, caressing your child, but making this so universal, applying it to God, that our relationship with God could be as sensitive and sensual as our relationship to any other individual. And to say that we too are bodies who long to be cherished and loved. We know the importance of tenderness and touch and of kiss. And here we are, the Blessed Virgin and her child. The Son of God is too like us and yet is at the heart of the cosmic drama. Mm. And it brings it into such concrete terms. This is an embodied spirituality that doesn't get lost in the clouds. And isn't it extraordinary, given all that we've said about Rossetti, as someone who clearly suffered and suffered in her body, may well have experienced a personal violation. This is someone who, in one sense, may have wanted to retreat from body, but who goes deeper into the body, into the sensual, in order to speak the truths of herself, but also to speak of God. This final stanza gives us the message that so many of us are desperate for, and that I think at heart so many of us believe, but that we don't allow ourselves to live into the fullness of the truth of that. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I'd bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what I can, I give him. Give my heart. I'm a contemporary poet. The concept of the heart, the image of the heart, is treated with real mistrust. It's seen as too quick, too easy. It's shorthand for sentiment. Rossetti is the opposite of that. She has earned that final word. She has taken us from a world that is frozen to the beating heart of ourselves and our reality. And it's just extraordinary, dare I say outrageous, when I look at this poem through the prism of all of the things that I've been taught over decades of writing poetry and going to poetry schools, doing master's degrees in poetry and creative writing, to land with the heart. It is utterly the right and correct and proper final line.
And that was In the Bleak Midwinter, composed by Harold Dark and performed by the Choir of King's College, Cambridge, under the direction of Daniel Hyde. This recording is available on their latest CD, In the Bleak Midwinter, Christmas Carols from Kings. On the choir's website, you can also pre-order a high-definition recording of this year's Carols by Candlelight, which will be broadcast on the BBC on Christmas Eve. You can find a link to that in our show notes. Hark is a production of America Media. This episode was written and produced by me and Ricardo Da Silva. Sound engineering on this episode is by Frank Tucson, who also composed original music for this episode and our theme music for Hark. Production assistance from our Joseph A. O'Hare Media Fellows, Cristobal Spielman, Jill Rice, and Christopher Parker. Parts of this episode were recorded in the William J. Lowshirt Studio at America Media in New York. Our studio manager is Kevin Jackson. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. Special thanks to the choir of King's College, Cambridge, Christopher Walker and Greg Shockman, Gareth Brooke, Charlene Wallace and Greg Kohler, the Ignatian Scola, Deborah Busking, Wayne Bennett, Gate City Brass, Cynthia Baina, and Salt of the Sound for providing the music for this episode. If you've been enjoying Hark, there's two things that you can do. First, share the series with a friend or on social media. We've only got one more week of caroling left this season, and the more the merrier. The other way to support the series is to get a digital subscription to America Media. Our subscribers can access all of America's content, including an article written on In the Bleak Midwinter by my colleague, Father Jim McDermott. It's easy to become a subscriber. Just go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe. For America Media, I'm Maggie Van Dorn. Thanks for caroling with us. On this season's final episode of Hark. The act of singing this particular hymn does not allow you to not be happy. It just creates this explosion within you because the notes themselves are just so magnificent and they require you to just explode with just joyfulness. This melody is pretty much lifted verbatim from one of the choruses in Messiah.